Hey, this is Jeremy Roenick, and guess what? You guys are listening to The Jim Bob Show. Hey, this is Wayne Larrabee, and you're listening to Roar on WGN. It is the one and only Ron Jaworski. Jim Bob, it's Ron Jaworski. I, I know. I'm in, I'm in awe. I know. But oh, awesome. come on. You guys are awesome, man. Keep up the great work. Hey, this is Brian Urlacher, and you're listening to The Jim Bob Show. That's awesome. Oh, and that's then, it. How about one? This is Brian Urlacher. I'm not a bitch. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's I love that one. You always have an opportunity to help somebody, to lift somebody up, to give somebody hope, to give somebody an opportunity to have success. And don't miss out on those opportunities. You never know when you're going to change somebody's life. Hey, guys, this is Tim Grunhardt, former Stop Cider, and you're listening to the Jim Bob Show right here on WGN. Atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, 720 WGM, the Jim Bob Show. And on the line, we have a Golden Domer, a pro bowler, one of the greatest ever for the Kansas City Chiefs, a member of that ring of honor, and now best-selling author, and Jim Bob, one of Chicago's very own. We got Grunny, we got Tim Grunhardt on here, Notre Dame or a Domer, and he's from St. Lawrence, right out of Burbank here. And he, this guy's got more accolades than, I mean, the only thing that he's not noted for is being a pickleball champion. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, uh, welcome. Sure. Welcome, <laughs> welcome, Tim. We're glad to have you. Yeah, you know what? I got one thing more I have to add to that resume that you guys don't have, and not a lot of people know this, but. This is the second time I've been on WGN. Oh. Now, the, the first time I was on WGN was 1972 when I was picked at the Bozo Show for the grand prize oh, game. Oh, it's tough to top that, Tim. <laughs> I don't know that we're going to be able to top that today. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Here's that. Hey, Zilla, we'll help you explain the, the facts to the people out there, Dane. Tell them about the Bozo Show. Okay, so for the listeners, right. Tim, you can tell the story. Set the scene. Yeah, so here's the deal. For all the people that grew up in Chicago, and obviously I grew up on the south side of Chicago, WGN, the Bozo Show, was uh, the big show that we watched growing up with, uh, you know, Bozo and Cookie and, and that weird Wizzo guy that scared the hell out of me. I'll tell you that right now. Those shoes he had on, I tell you what, there's a couple times where I wish I could use those shoes against them sticking up the you-know-what. But, but I digress. So, you know, they were sitting in the stands, and they'd have this grand prize game where there's these buckets on the ground. You'd take a ping pong, you'd throw it in the bucket. And he won a prize. So, uh, you know, the, the, the arrow was some kind of fake arrow that was flying around the stands. And, and all of a sudden, boom, it landed on me. They went up and they got me. And I got, I think I got to the third bucket and I missed. But I got to take a picture with Cookie and Wizzo. Uh, so it's on WGN as a little kid, the grand prize game. I had a picture of that. I was trying to find it. I was going to share it with you guys. So you can see it, but this is the second time, and I'm not saying that I'm out with a couple clowns here again. But I'm telling you, <laughs> well, you got that right, man. Hey, we got to get that picture because we're going to post that picture when we put that out there. We've got to have it, man. We will you go into it. the archives and we will get that picture. And of course, Chicago fans will know what that means. It is a little piece of immortality to be part of the Bozo Show for those people all around the country that are hearing this. I mean, it was hard to get on that show. I know a little sad story is my grandma got me. T- 
tickets when I was like six to go in the Bozer. I think, Tim, right? There was only like 50 or 100 people. It's very small in there. My thing was like six, seven years away. By the time my tickets were there, I was like 17. My grandma passed away. I never made it. So we'll live through you on that one. Well, you didn't make the there NFL. There you go. You, you, <laughs> you didn't make the NFL either. <laughs> If you were 17 years old going to the Bozo show, we were going to have you committed, though. I'll just let you know that right now. Hey, so got this, uh, I got this great book, View from the Center, and uh, My Life and the Rebirth of Chief's Kingdom by uh, Tim Grunhardt. And and I'll I tell you what, I, I got to reading it, and I was reading it on vacation. And I, I loved it because I'm a Kansas boy. I grew up in Kansas and I, I started my professional career, not very long, very professional career, but I did start with the Kansas City Chiefs. So, you know, during your time when you were there, you know, from uh, the 11 years you were with the Chiefs, uh, followed you guys and, and watch out. I, I, you know, you, you went through kind of the rebirth when Marty came back and, and, you know, what a gritty, gritty team you guys had in those years and so forth. But before we get there, I want to kind of go back and and you know i want you to talk a little bit about st lawrence and burbank and south side boy and wanting to grow up and be a domer and how all it took place because it's very interesting story how you know the probability of you going to notre dame was pretty slim till lou yeah. Holtz got the job so tell us take that down that street yeah yeah hey thanks for bringing it up to you bob it's, it's really kind of a cool story it really started when i was about four or five years old you know, my dad was a Chicago policeman, a soft side violent crime detective out of Area 2 over there up 103rd and Doty Road. That's where his office was. He was a huge Bears fan and a huge Notre Dame fan. So that's the only teams, kind of like Rudy's dad, right? You only watch the Bears and you only watch Notre Dame football. Nothing else was on his TV. So grew up a huge Notre Dame fan. Well, in 1970, I think it was four, when the Chiefs won Super Bowl four over the Minnesota Vikings, my aunt, who was living actually in New Mexico, and I put this in the book, and I think it's a really interesting story, bought me a Chiefs helmet. They owned a hardware store, and I think because the NFL just sent out all kinds of different helmets from the Super Bowl teams to the Ace Hardware store, she just kind of brought me one. Well, she gave me this helmet when I was about four years old, and I looked at the Chiefs helmet, and I started to cry. It wasn't a Bears helmet. <laughs> And it wasn't a Notre Dame helmet, right? So my dad took the Chiefs helmet and painted it Notre Dame gold. Now, I wore the helmet every day. I wore it. My mom said, you can't wear it to Mass. Well, I'd cry until I put that thing on a Mass. And I wore it every day that whole summer and into before I went to school. And in the book, I have a picture of that helmet. And you can see the red of the Kansas City Chiefs bleeding through the gold of Notre Dame. And the funny thing is, it's the only two football programs I ever played for, Notre Dame and the Kansas City Chiefs. So at four years old, I had a precursor of where I was going to spend the rest of my life. Yeah, it's a great story. So when I was at St. Lawrence, uh, I was not being recruited from Jerry Faust. Jerry Faust thought I was too small to play at Notre Dame. Lou Holtz offered me a scholarship at Minnesota. And when he took the job at Notre Dame, I thought, okay, here we go. He's going to kind of carry that scholarship over for me from Minnesota. But I didn't hear from him for about a month. So I was like, oh, it goes, you know, I'm going to have to pick another school. I had a couple other schools in mind, but I always wanted to go to Notre Dame. Well, I was working at the Walgreens on 59th and Pulaski, everybody, 59th and Pulaski Walgreens, and uh, I got a phone call. Manager's like, you got a phone call? And I was like, really? Who, I know who's going to call me here at Walgreens? So I get on the phone, and this voice says, Tim Grunhardt, this is Lou Holt, and I want to see if you can come this weekend to an official visit to Notre Dame. 
And I looked at the phone and I looked up and I said, who is this? Who the hell is calling me? I thought it was one of my buddies pimping me, right? So I'm like, yeah, sure, coach. Yeah, you know, and then eventually I figured out it was him. Uh, to make a long story short, went on. I, went, I didn't have the scholarship to Notre Dame yet at that point. When I went there for the visit, they offered me a scholarship that Sunday morning. I was the last guy in that class to get offered a scholarship, and the rest is history. But, yeah, so uh, I always wanted to go to Notre Dame. Got really got my offer at Walgreens at 59th and Pulaski, <laughs> and it was the last guy offered at Notre Dame. That is a great story. Is great stories in the book, uh, View from the Center by Tim Grunhardt. And I tell you, there's some great stories in there. I, I loved reading about your, your dad <laughs> painting that green and, and your, your aunt just buying whatever the hell. Here's a football helmet for you. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, one of the things in the book that I, I really enjoyed was I was uh, down on the, the Chiefs field a few years ago when they had you know Tyreek Hill and and everybody on the team was fast and our mutual buddy Billy Moss was down there and and I was looking at the size of the guys and and the speed the Chiefs the Chiefs team two years ago was one of the fastest NFL teams that I think I'd ever seen on the field and until you get on the field you know people don't realize the speed of the game but uh, one of the things that your daughter says and you put in the book is daddy it's scary I I can't did you really play against guys this big And, 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 and I mean I mean I look at the team that you were on with with Dave Zott and Will Shields. I mean, you guys were that was a massive offensive line. Yeah, you know that's that's a great story. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, so when I was being honored and being put on the Ring of Fame uh, at Arrowhead, uh, it was the first time my girls have ever been on the field, and it was right before half. So we walked down the tunnel and got on the field, and the game was still going on. And they were playing against the Giants. It was the Chiefs and the Giants, and my daughter, my youngest daughter, Cassie, who's now a nurse in, in St. Louis, turned to me, she goes, Dad, these guys are humongous. Did you really play against these guys this big? And I'm like, yeah, Cassie, I guess I did. But, you know, you don't realize it until, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's, that's a great point you bring up. When you get down on the field and you realize how big these guys are and how fast they are and how athletic they are, it's just an amazing feat to see these guys do what they do on the football field. It really is. And the, the speed of the game, I was going to gonna ask you, you know, Marty was, you know, uh, that Pittsburgh mentality, the ground and pound. And you guys, when you got there in 1990, you know, you guys, that, that team went 11 and 5 and 10 and 6 the next year, 10 and 6. And then it was weird. In uh, 93, after going 11 and 5, the next year, 9 and 7, then 13 and 3, 9 and 7, 13 and 3, 7 and 9. Explain how you go from 13 and 3 to a 7 and 9 year or 13 and 3 to a 9 and 7 year what what was happening yeah that's a that's a great question and you know I really don't talk about it too much in the book but I, I really probably could have you know we just had a bad locker room that year I you know I think Marty tried to press a little bit it reminded me of Gene Autry kind of back in the day with the uh with the California Angels right when he tried to buy a team and he brought all these guys that were supposed to be these superstars and it's supposed to be these great baseball players and they didn't quite work out and never quite worked out for them and that was kind of the way it was we brought some guys in that just weren't good guys we brought some guys in that didn't fit in that locker room it was a bad chemistry that year and then of course you had the monday night meltdown with Derek thomas and uh sterling sharp which you know was just an embarrassment to lamar hunt and everything else where there's a big fight and it was a terrible terrible deal it just wasn't a good locker room. And that's, and I think that that's really an underrated part of an NFL team and, a, and an NFL chemistry is that locker room. If you don't have the right guys in there, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you guys don't come together as a team, it's still a team sport. 
come together as a team and figure that out. You can have all the talent in the world, but yet it just won't work. And that's what happened that year. Talking about, you know, teams and so forth. And I, I we're jumping around here in, in the history of Tim Grunhard, uh, you know, national champion, uh, 1988 with Notre Dame. Tell us about the chemistry of, of those teams and, and what Lou put together and, and your time being a, a Notre Dame great player and, and, and winning the national championship. Yeah, so that, that, that class, my, my junior class was Lou Holtz's first class. And we talked a little bit about the recruiting and how the recruiting process went for me. But let's fast forward to our very first meeting that we had when we were freshmen going into Notre Dame. And I talk about this in the book. And, and Lou Holtz walks in the room and tells everybody to sit up, get your feet on the ground, get your notepads out, get your pens out. I want you to look it up, paying attention to me, and you know, all that kind of good stuff. And then at that point, he said, I want all the guys that I recruited to please stand up right now. And at this point, we thought, okay, coach is going to say, these are the guys that I brought in. These are the guys we're building this program around. You know, Notre Dame just came off a butt whooping at Miami in 1985, and it was an embarrassment and all those guys. And these are the guys that we're going to build this team around. So we all stood up, feel pretty good about ourselves. And Lou Holtz goes and says, if I had one more month of recruiting, one more month to find guys, none of your asses would have been here. So <laughs> oh. sit down and be quiet. Oh, so wow. Yeah. So that was Lou Holtz. Cause I think he understood that we thought we were better or we thought we had it all figured out or we thought that, you know, that we were going to be, you know, the, the, the chosen guys, for lack of a better term. And, you know, we had to earn our way on. And that, that freshman class that got embarrassed the very first meeting was the catalyst to that that national championship when we were juniors. You know, my junior year, we lost a bunch of great starters. Chuck Lanza was a starter. Tom Freeman was a starter uh, on the offensive line. We had a bunch of guys on the offensive line that all graduated. And I think I was the only one coming back with multiple starts as a, as a sophomore. So all those guys came in. Uh, Andy Heck, who's now the offensive line coach for the Chiefs, was a tight end. They moved him to tackle. Mike Brennan, who was uh, just uh, another guy, played lacrosse. And then all of a sudden, he started playing football, walked on, and then he started at the guard. And then Tim Ryan, who was another guard who uh, was a linebacker, for lack of a better term, in, in the first year of his, of his career, in his second year, they moved the line. So we had all these guys who never played offensive line together. We came together, we worked hard, and we figured it out. And that team, behind Tony Rice and some of the special things he did with Rocket Ishmael and with you know uh, uh, all the, the, the Brooks brothers, all those kind of guys, that we were able to put together a team. And once again, that was all about chemistry and coming together. And it's, like I said, you going to your childhood dream of, of Notre Dame almost doesn't happen because I think, according to the book and so forth, you were probably headed to Minnesota. Yeah, I was probably going to go to Minnesota or South Carolina. It was probably one of the, the two the two schools that, uh, that showed the most interest in me. And then when Lou left Minnesota, I didn't hear much from them either. So I was basically getting ready to I went down to Texas, guys, and you'll love this because you hear my Chicago accent. It comes out when I'm talking to you guys, and I love it. I love the Chicago accent. I don't get to use it very much. <laughs> but I went down there to Texas, to Austin, Texas, and these guys looked at me like I was an alien. Like, who the hell is this guy from Chicago coming down here to Texas, right? So I didn't really feel comfortable there. You know, I went to a couple of other different schools. You know, Illinois never recruited me. So I, I give crap all the time to Coach White when I used to see him back in the – I said, you didn't recruit me. You know, from St. Lawrence to Illinois, and I ended up going and 
you know, having a nice career at Notre Dame, you didn't recruit me. He's like, oh, we recruited you. I said, you didn't recruit me, Mike. You didn't recruit me. So, <laughs> so you know, one of those things where, yeah, it just kind of worked out well that I fell into the place I really wanted to go to, and the rest is history. Yeah, Tim, it's great to win a national championship wherever you are. And, of course, that was your favorite team, so obviously that comes into place. But years to look back to win a national championship at Notre Dame. I mean, we talked about the immortality of the Bozo show, right? This is the kind of thing that pays dividends. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that as time has gone on, as that has just become probably even greater. Yeah, you know what? I wish that we weren't the last class to have won a national championship at Notre Dame, but it's been a long, long time, over 30-some years, which is amazing to me. Uh, yeah, you know what? It was a special class. It was a special time. Notre Dame is a special place. But, you know, college football is better when Notre Dame is good. And, you know, Notre Dame has been up and down over the last couple of years this year. You know, new coach and new situation. And they lost some games they probably should have won. But, yeah, you know what? When you have that ring on your finger and you go to any event or you're walking around town or you're in the airport or you're on an airplane and somebody sees that, I mean, it's a special, special feeling. You're always going to be a part of the history of a great university and a great uh, football tradition like Notre Dame. You know, that that's a great story. I like, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about Mike Webster and, and your relationship with Mike is that when I was talking to Billy Bob Moss and, and I was t- telling him I got Tim coming on the show in a couple of weeks or so forth, he goes, well, make sure you bring up Webby. And I, I go, I will. And, yeah. uh, you know, we'll talk about Mike. Uh, and, you know, he gets hired as a, a an offensive line assistant coach for the Chiefs. And, you know, you're in your rookie season and the story kind of goes is that you know webby decides to come in a little help at center and and then finally after about the five fifth or sixth game webby goes damn it it's time for the kid to play so tell us this story about (laughs) webby and so forth let's hear it yeah so i got into the kansas city chiefs and mike webster the first day i walked in he goes my job is to get you ready to play sooner than later because i don't want to play anymore i'm too old to be playing this game so, yeah, I think we played the Minnesota Vikings in the first game. I think after three or four series, I went in. And then we played a Monday night game against Denver. Two or three series, I went in. And then after that, uh, you know, started to take over the, the center reins. But the, the best story is we were playing against the Denver Broncos about halfway through the season, maybe a little bit more. I had some tough times. I lost my father. My father passed away from cancer. So I buried my dad and, you know, came back about a week or two later. I was there, but obviously it was a week or two after my dad passed away. I had a, a horrible injury on my hand. I had a big cast on my hand. So I, I was just getting my butt kicked from Greg Cragen. Greg Cragen was handing it to me. It was embarrassing. So in the middle of a series, I get a tap on my shoulder, right? This isn't like going out and getting a relief pitcher or a starting pitcher after he's kind of done with his, his pitch count. This is an offensive lineman in an NFL game being pulled out in the middle of a series. So that can't be good, right? <laughs> so I get tapped on my shoulder, and Michael Webby goes, yeah, Marty wants to see you. I'm like, oh, crap, here we go. I'm going to get cut. I just lost my dad. You know, I just bought a house here in Kansas City. You know, I got this injury. You know, I'm feeling sorry for myself. I go sit on the bench, and halftime comes, and, and I'm pouting. I mean, I'm just going to raise my hand right now and say I was being the biggest baby of all time. I'm feeling sorry for myself, guys. And, you know, and you can't do that. You've got to rally. But I had to learn my lesson. So I go in uh, at halftime and, and sit right next to Webby. His locker was next to mine. He starts taking his shoes off and his socks off and cutting his tape off. You know, I thought it was unusual, but, you know, maybe he's just getting re-spatted, re-taped, whatever. 
And then all of a sudden, he starts taking his jersey off, and Marty notices it, too, walks over and says, Mike, what are you doing? He says, listen, I'm not going in anymore. That's your guy. You get him back in there. If you don't put him in there, I mean, and at that point, I, I looked at him, and Marty looked at me and goes, all right, go back in. And at that point, it was like Rocky too, right? When Adrian woke up from the, the uh, coma she had, and Rocky said, well, you know, listen, Adrian, I don't want to play anymore. I don't have to fight. And she said, I just want you to do one thing for me, Rocky. And he said, what's that? Win. And, and like he said, what are we waiting for? And it was just around. And that's the way I felt. I mean, all of a sudden, I had this energy pulse, this energy surge that went through my body. And I went out and had a great half of football. It saved my career. I, you know, who knows? If I, if I would have pouted and I would have felt sorry for myself and Mike would have, you know, just didn't care about me and didn't want me to succeed, what would have happened? You know, I, I fast forward 11 in the NFL and then getting up on the ring of fame and it all hinged on a decision that Mike Webster made to back me up in a tough situation. So my advice to everybody out there is you always have an opportunity to help somebody, to lift somebody up, to give somebody hope, to give somebody an opportunity to have success. And don't miss out on those opportunities. You never know when you're going to change somebody's life. I tell you what, I love the story. I love it, Granny. It's a great story, and it's a great tribute to to one of the all-time greats that that we lost in the NFL to CTE. And I, I do want to talk a little bit about that and the fact that, you know, <laughs> anybody who's played the game, and, you know, it was estimated that, that Mike Webster took 70,000 pounds to the head, you know, poundings mm-hmm. to the head and so forth over his career. You know, talk a little bit about, do you think we're doing enough in the NFL today? Do you think we're doing enough for the past players and so forth and, and your comments? Well, as far as the past players, I think they're trying. Uh, I don't think they're doing enough, but that's just the nature of the beast. When you're a current player or you're somebody who's working with the current athletes, you know, you, you, you tend to forget the guys that played before. And, you know, I, I would like to think that I didn't, but I probably did. So I don't want to hold any animosity or any issues about the players that are playing now. But the one thing that I do want to point out is I think the NFL has done a nice job of correcting some of the issues that we went through. We got our bell rung. You remember back in the day when we would have our bell rung or we would, you know, have a, a, a big time hit. That was a badge of honor. Oh, yeah, I got my bell rung. You know, there was no concussion protocol. We went down, sat down, knocked the, the spider webs out, and went back and played. And I'm glad the NFL has cut that cut that out. And the other thing is with different techniques and different things that are happening now with the head-to-head contact, I'm glad. But you know what? There's got to be a way that we can help out because this isn't going away. There's a lot of guys that I know, and I'm sure you guys both know, that are struggling with these issues, that are having problems with CTE. And it's mood and it's, it's thought process and it's functioning as a normal human being. And when you can't do that and you can't go out and you can't maybe earn a living or you can't communicate, somebody needs to take care of you. And I'm hoping that the NFL realizes that they got to continue to dig into the CTE thing. They've made some great strides, some great steps towards this but they have a long way to go because there's a lot of people out there suffering. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Is that I had the, I, I don't know, the badge of honor. I don't know. I got knocked out of a game by Wade Wilson. Now, people don't know this, but <laughs> Wade, Wade Wilson was 6'4", about 250 quarterback. And, and I mean, you know, uh, Wade tries to jump me and, and his knee hits me in the crown of the head and knocks me goofy and I'm coming off the sideline. I don't even know what day it is. And, and 
Dale Lindsay, our defensive coordinator, goes, what are you doing? I go, ah, man, I'm knocked out. I'm messed up. And he goes, get your ass back out there. We got nobody else to play. There. Everybody's hurt. And I go walking out there, and I go, Murph, what are you running? He goes, he goes invert it. We're going to run a, run a four, run four, invert it. What is that? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you don't even know what the hell the play is. And, and so I line up, and I think, okay, well, I'm going to get where I think I should be. And I take my drop, and Wilson throws it out. And, and I happen to get in front of it, and I tell everybody it sticks in my face mask. And I run 87 yards back <laughs> and get tackled on the two-yard line by an offensive lineman of all people, Tim. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. There was The protocol was get your ass back out there yeah <laughs> um, one of the absolutely you're absolutely right one of the other comments i like out of your book is that you know you 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 play hard and it, you talk about it being a job and it is a job and, and you talk about um you didn't have the opportunity to be a walk-on at notre dame but you know you, you could provide for your children but one of the things that really got me in the book was your greatest treasures and you put it in the book or your family your kids and i thought i thought that was that was a great that, that was just a fantastic line from from your standpoint but played with so many great guys you know you're you're a permanent part of kansas city now you know the ring of honor um i mean tell us about being a south side chicago boy and and, and then going to kansas city which is you know as you talk about in the book you're flying over and there's pastures and cows and cows and pastures <laughs> seem like a, i'm going to dodge city not kansas city <laughs> yeah you know so growing up on the south side of chicago i think there's an inherent toughness anybody that grows up in Chicago or in the outlying areas of Chicago, it's just, it's kind of who we are as a, as a people. We're tough people. Uh, we're blue collar. We work hard for what we get. My father was very, very tough on my brother and I, you know, he raised two division one athletes and two professional athletes. It wasn't easy. He was not easy to be uh, a son of, I mean, he held us to account and at times was probably borderline abusive with a lot of the things that we did, but that's the only thing well, way he knew how to go about doing it. Very loving guy, but very, very uh, uh, demanding person. And I think that's the way Chicago is. I think Chicago is people love being there and love being about Chicago, but there's a lot of demands that you have to uh, overcome when you grow up in Chicago. And, and I think that's really helped me many times when things are down or I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, sorry for myself or trying to rally a little bit. You know, I go back to the guys I grew up with and the guys that I spent time with growing up and, and, you know, seeing where they're at and what they're doing. Most of them are policemen and firemen that bust their ass every day to be first responders and go out and put their lives on the line every day. And I was lucky enough to play football in Kansas City. So I'm very, very blessed to uh, have the opportunity to play this, this kid's game for a living. But Chicago is who I am. I've been living in Kansas City now for 30 years, and, and uh, it's where my kids are from, and, and I love Kansas City. But I'm a Chicagoan through and through, and I was built, and I was put together, and I was founded on the south side of Chicago in uh, 103rd and Western Avenue. That's who I am, and that's what I've always carried in my soul. And, you know, when I go back, people always say, well, I'm glad you didn't forget you know, didn't forget Chicago. And I say, no, 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 I'm glad you didn't forget me. You know, I love this place. 
Well, you think about that and the city helping to lift you up, your memories, your association, the relationship with it. I think a common thing of this conversation has been being an inspiration for people and lifting people up when they need them. You could do that one-to-one in conversation. That certainly happened with you. But for the book, you know, is that part of the inspiration for writing it is to have this kind of permanent thing out there that can be that, that lift up and that inspiration for people who pick it up and read it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I talk a lot about growing up on the south side of Chicago. I talk a lot about overcoming adversity, uh, which I had to overcome a lot of adversities. Talk about my playing career and a great, you know, I played every snap for the Kansas City Chiefs throughout the decade of the 90s, 11 seasons. And, uh, you know, but the main thing I wanted to get out of is how we, in the 1990s, here in the Kansas City Chiefs, with Marty Schottenheimer and Carl Peterson, kind of built the foundation for what they talk about here as the Chiefs' kingdom. That, that's kind of the, the, the tagline for uh, the football team in this, this modern age is the Chiefs' kingdom. Well, that foundation was laid by guys like Bill Moss, guys like Neil Smith, guys like Derek Thomas, guys like Joe Montana when he came, guys like Dan Saliamua, guys like John Alt, guys like Dave Zott and Will Shields. That foundation was built from those guys. And I wanted to share my stories about the love affair, though, that was built in the 90s between the fan base and the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, it's changed a lot, guys, as you know. You can't do a lot of the same things that we did back in the day with the fans nowadays just because of social media and cameras and video cameras on your phone and all that kind of stuff. I get it. But that was what really made Kansas City what it is, a love affair that was built. And everybody always talks about Arrowhead as being a college-like atmosphere. And I think that they they simplistic thinking is that, well, because everybody dresses in red and it's loud, that it's a college-like atmosphere. But it goes deeper than that. In the 90s, what we tried to do is just like a student would with another uh, student athlete. So if you're walking around campus and you run into that offensive lineman in the cafeteria or that running back in psych class, you get to know them, you talk to them, you have a, a good relationship with them, and you root for them when you see them on the field. Well, that's what we tried to do through radio shows and appearances at hospitals and 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 appearances at high schools and doing all kinds of charity events. Carl Peterson and Marty Schottenheimer made it a point of emphasis for us to get out in the community and build those relationships. So when those people went to the games, they felt ownership. They felt like they knew Tim Grunhardt. They knew Bill Moss. They knew Derek Thomas. And they had a personal relationship. So that's why, through thick and thin, even to this day, Chiefs fans will go out because I think there's a personal relationship that was built and established in the 90s that continues today that it's not really about just wins and losses. Obviously, that's really important. But it's the relationship between the fan and the player that was developed and now is a tradition here in Kansas City. Yeah, I think that's right on there. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, it goes back to, you know, Lenny Dawson days too. And we lost sure. Lenny this year too, which, uh, was certainly sad. But, um, you know, the, the nineties was a, was a, a real transition time when Marty came in there and, and had, uh, you know, a, a number of great winning seasons going 13 and three a couple of times. That was fantastic. Now I, I love your book talking about, you know, collecting pop bottles to, to go get your, 
your candy bar down 7-Eleven. I mean, I, I did that. So I could relate. There's a lot of great stories in the book about, you know, I think so many people can relate to, you know, as, as growing up and, and not knowing if you're good enough to, to make it, you know, and play in the big times and so forth. And you talk a lot about that and so forth. And, you know, one of the things we do on the show is, you know, we, we, we have a section on the foodie side of it. And, uh, you know, I was always telling Dane, I go, you know, I mean, today it's so different. These like, you know, the guys have a lot more time. It seems like, uh, didn't seem like we had any time we went into some place, but you know, you like LCs, I'm a Q39 guy. And so I, I say, I say we do this. I say we, we go have a rib. We have, we have a rib to eat off and you're going to win that. I'm just telling you, but, but, uh, you know, the offensive line is always noted for, uh, you know, getting taken care of by the running back or quarterbacks and so forth. What was one of the better dinners that you ever had that, you know, either Rich Gannon or DeBerg or Montana, you guys made him buy? Well, give us a story on that. Well, you know, we were kind of just the basic old, uh, hey, give us a great fried chicken and, and uh, baked potato and green beans, you know, the family style. There was a place called Stroud's that used to be right across the street from Arrowhead that we would go to all the time. And, and I'll never forget, so we went there. Joe Montana was having us for a uh, kind of a, a Christmas type of, you know, December meal. And he said, I'll meet you guys there. I'm going to buy you guys all, you know, dinner. We'll meet you there. We'll have drinks. We'll, you know, mess around, play pool, whatever it was. So we went into this place, and all of a sudden, here comes Joe, right? And he's got three or four other guys with him, and he's got a handful of shotguns, right? So we're sitting in there, and uh, here comes Joe Montana and a bunch of guys with shotguns, and everybody that didn't know that this was going to happen was freaking out because all of a sudden here's a bunch of guys with guns coming into the restaurant, right? <laughs> so we're sitting there, and Joe Montana said, here's your Christmas present, guys. I bought you a Benelli shotgun. And the owner, I'll never forget the owner, uh, it's like, hey, Joe, you, you got to put those guns back in the car. You can't bring the guns in here. He goes, oh, no, no, I'm just going to give it to the guys, and then they can do what they want with them. He's like, no, no, no. So that was one of my favorite stories. Is Joe Montana gave us these that's a great shotgun, yeah. but he gave it to us in the middle of a crowded restaurant. Benelli shotguns. But he would because of, because of that present. But, yeah, so Joe, Joe Montana, was he always had a lot of fun. And Joe, Joe loved being here in Kansas City. I talk about it a lot. That, you know, if he had his way, you know, Jennifer was more of a West Coast gal and she wanted to get back there. But he loved being here in Kansas City because basically they left him alone here in Kansas City, which was cool. And he loved that. So he loved Kansas City. But we only had Joe here for a couple of years, but he made a big big impact on Kansas City and, and the Kansas City. Street. Well, they I don't know if they left him alone or he was walking around with a shotgun and people were just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was in the book, you talk about a lot of your your uh, your former teammates and one of them, you know, we, we talked about our, our mutual buddy Billy Moss but Nick Lauer is one of our ambassadors for El Bandito Yankee which is our tequila and one of the sponsors yeah. of the show and and uh, so so I love I'm going to have to give some uh, some static to Nick about the fact that he always had product in his hair. <laughs> but the, tell the story about when Marty wants to get him ready for for the playoffs and we're going to we're going to go where they're going to be throwing snowballs. It's like Philly where they throw snowballs at Santa Claus, but d- tell the story about Nick and when when Marty's got him set up and you guys are throwing those sock balls at him. That's a great one. Yeah, so uh so what happened is we're going to go play in a playoff game against the Buffalo Bills. And we just saw this a couple of weeks ago in Buffalo where they were throwing snowballs at the players and throwing snowballs on the sideline. Well, 
Marty thought it'd be a great idea. He asked Alan Wright, who is still the equipment manager here, to get a bunch of socks and tape them up and put them in the big box. And then when Nick was getting ready to kick during the special team period, everybody throws the, the socks at him like snowball, right? <laughs> and uh, so Nick was, wasn't real happy. If you know Nick, Nick, <laughs> Nick takes things pretty serious with those kind of things. He's kind of he's kind of different in that kind of way. Well, George Mua took a snow, one of those socks and ran up to him and nailed him right in the face. Now, remember, Nick always had that one bar. So that uh, was a big room. He got it right in the face. So Nick got all upset, was chasing Salmu around. And I was like, if, you, if he catches if he catches Salmu, Salmu's going to kill him. But, uh, you know, but Dan was running around. So, yeah, those are the kind of the fun things that we did. And, and, yeah, we gave Nick a lot of flack for that because – he thought he was pretty tough, but if Salmo would have stopped and turned around, he would have killed him. So. Yeah. Now let, let's talk about what are what are your you know you you coached you you got a state title and you got like I said you got more accolades than about anybody we have had on the show other than like I said pickleball championship and we we had Erlacher on a few weeks ago and Erlacher goes well if I played I'd be the champion of pickleball. <laughs> He's like, I, if I played pickleball I'd be in the Hall of yeah, Fame. Yeah, be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> he was getting ready to get inducted to the Chicago Hall of Fame and so. Uh, but uh, what are your vices today? You like to play golf. What is it? What's keeping you busy? Yeah, I, I play a lot of golf out here, and and you know we we have a place down in Florida, and and uh, yeah, thanks for the invite. I was going to come and see you in the playoff game, but since they had the bye week, I'm heading down to Florida. Nothing's going to stop me from getting out of this cold ass weather here in Kansas City. So I head down to Florida. So we'll go down there. I spend a lot of time on the beach, play a lot of golf, do a little kayaking, you know, ride bikes, those kind of things. Try to stay active as much as possible. You know, my dad used to tell me all the time back in the day, he said, listen, there's not a lot of 70-year-olds that are 300 pounds. So when you get out of the league, you better lose some weight. And that was kind of the point of emphasis for me is when I was done playing, you know, I kind of ballooned up to about 340. Uh-huh. And then now I'm down to about 240. So I lost about 100 pounds over the last five or six years, and I try to keep that off. So working out and biking and walking and doing all those kind of things, and it's so much easier in warmer weather. So that's basically what I do. Try to stay healthy. Try to make good decisions. And uh, try to stay warm. How and about you guys in Chicago? You guys know how cold it can get. Well, we so. know. I just got back. I was down in <laughs> I was down in Florida doing a little bit of that myself for about seven or eight days, and I had to come back. We we had to go to the Green Bay Packers game, and I had to take the kids up there. We, <laughs> El Bandito Yankees got a suite up there, and and we, I had to suffer through that. Uh, wasn't happy about it, but um, no. And so, <laughs> since your playing days and so forth, did you have any serious injuries? I mean, you left a lot of yourself on the and sweat and tears and so forth, but any real serious injuries lingering? Well, no, I just I had my knee replaced about 10 years ago. It just enough was enough. And, you know, had about nine or 10 surgeries on that knee uh, and it just finally kind of gave out. Uh, other than that, now just kind of minor surgeries, kind of clean up things and still doing those things. I mean, every once in a while, you know, you, you another, another chip falls off in your elbow or, you know, something like that. You got to get it taken out. But, you know, I really got through okay. You know, I was blessed. You know, I played in a very, very tough position at the center position where you get hit every play and kind of got out where, you know, I could still play golf. I could still walk 18 holes if I have to. I could still do those kind of things. So very blessed. But uh, I had the artificial knee. It doesn't work as well as your real knee, but it doesn't hurt as bad. So at least I have that going for me. But, yeah, basically just knee replacements. The only thing that I – you know, came out with was one last knee. 
couple things. We're going to, you know, we're going to have you back on the show when season rolls around next year and so forth to see how everything's doing. But I want want to make sure and encourage everybody yeah. to go out and and uh, get the book, a view from the center. But you know, one last thing. You know, your dad passed away passed away from cancer, yeah. and I know that you know you're involved in a lot of uh, philanthropic uh, activities. I know fighting cancer is one of them, and and, and your dad being yeah. who he was and who you describe it, it had to be a little rough for you to see a guy like that and go through what he did, you know, with cancer and so forth. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, your involvement and in, in all the community activities that you do and your philanthropic activities in Kansas city. Yeah, thanks. So I'll start with the Kansas city chiefs. I'm the uh, Kansas city chief ambassador, which is a group of ex players to do a lot of uh, charity work around Kansas city, you know, through the season and the off season. When the players are busy, we kind of take over and do a bunch of different stuff. We do stuff with the Cancer Society. We do stuff for Big Brothers, Big Sisters. My wife and I have a little that we have, and we get to see once a week that we go and do different things with. So we have that going on. Then I also am on the board of Derek Thomas's Third and Long Foundation, which helps inner city kids with uh, reading programs and giving an opportunity to, to get into good schools and, and be productive academically. Also do a lot of stuff, like I said, with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and the American Cancer Society. But, you know, you know, and I've, I've been coaching over at a, a Capital Catholic school here in Kansas City now for, I took a couple of years off while my son was playing at Notre Dame, but I've been basically coaching now for over about 20 years. And I uh, really enjoy, and everybody always says to me, hey, Granny, you have that natural gift of gab. Why didn't you go into doing some broadcasting? Why didn't you go and doing some games on Saturdays or Sundays? And that was a viable option. But, you know, getting back to Mike Webster, who gave me an opportunity to use football as a vehicle to have success and to have a great life and to, and to do things that, that I always wanted to do. And he gave me that opportunity. And, you know, I always felt bad, and I talked about this in the book, that I didn't know how bad he was. You know, we didn't know. I, I, I should have known. I should have been able to help. I should have been able to try to give him an opportunity like he gave me an opportunity to bounce back, and I didn't have that. So I promised to him after he passed away that I would work with kids in football and give him an opportunity, give him a vehicle to have success, whether it's to go to college or just learn life lessons. Football is a microcosm of life. We all have fourth down situations in our life that we got to convert. And uh, Mike gave me that opportunity, and that's why I do what I do. I coach and do the things I do with kids. Pay back Mike Webster for giving me the opportunity to have an eleven year career. Well, you're extending that reach, you know, every day, you know, with the kids and the coaching, and of course in the book and here on the show too. So he is alive. His message is alive as well. And we'll have links up at wgnradio.com and of course the Jim Bob Show as well. And uh, for before we let you go, do you have like a whether it's a website or social media for people to get maybe more yeah. information about the book or keep up with your adventures as you go? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just go to Tim Grunhart, G-R-U-N-H-A-R-D.com. And on my website, uh, you can go ahead and purchase the book there. If you purchase the book there, I sign all the books that are bought there. And then you can get it on Amazon or you can get it at Barnes and Noble, all those kind of different websites or uh, stuff like that. And then, yeah, I'm just at Grunny61 on Twitter. I do a lot of stuff on Twitter. I have a lot of different takes on, on football and on the Kansas City Chiefs and I'm just you know, they always call me the light coach here on the radio station. So a little light coaching, but, uh, yeah, so I'm at Grunny 61. If you want to follow me on Twitter, but man, I'll tell you what, uh, my roots and, and, uh, 
and my life are well grounded in the soil of the south side of Chicago. And it's so fun to be on with you guys, be on with WGN. You know, we started about talking about the Bozo Show. I'm a huge Cub <laughs> fan. I know that I grew up on the south side. It's like being a Catholic in Northern Ireland, right? You had to fight for your religion. Yeah, that's, but, that's, uh, that's, that's know, dangerous, uh, man. Dangerous being a Cubs fan on the south side. <laughs> you ain't kidding. Uh, I watched every Cub game growing up with uh, from Jack Brickhouse to Harry Carey to Steve Stone, all those guys. And, and uh, WGN's been a big part of my life. So it's so cool to be back on with you guys, man. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Really appreciate the opportunity to be back in Chicago, even if it's by radio. And, man, I just tell you how much I love being uh, on with you guys. I love being back in Chicago when I get back. And the Chicago in my, in my blood still runs very, very uh, heavy. And uh, just really love the opportunity to be here with you guys. So thanks so much. Hey, buddy. We appreciate it, Grunny. And uh, we'll catch up with you again here uh, next uh, the season rolls around. We're going to have you back on and talk some more stuff. we got a lot more to talk about. I want to talk about your days coaching with Charlie Weiss and stuff like that. But, hey, man, a real pleasure yeah. today to have have a national champion, Notre Dameron, on here today and, and the Hall of Fame and the Kansas City Chiefs ring of honor, buddy. You're, it was honor. Thanks so much.